It's Sunday, November 1st. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. COVID-19 cases continue to skyrocket across the country. There are more people testing positive for COVID-19, and the numbers continue to outpace those of the first wave. Last Friday, the Public Health Agency of Canada released new modelling. The key takeaway? Canadians need to lower their contacts to avoid the stark projections that the Public Health Authority released. I sat down with Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam. We talked about the government's response to COVID-19, public health messaging, and about the lessons learned and mistakes that were made along the way here. Dr. Tam, thank you so much for making time for us. It's my pleasure. What has this pandemic been like for you? I mean, you have been front and center, you've been a critical decision maker, a tremendous amount of information and stress, uh, an ability to perform every single day. I'm curious to know what it's been like for you personally going through this. Well, as I've said so many times, it is a marathon for sure. And there have been days when it's extremely tiring and you're doing, you know, I don't know how many hours, you know, 14, 16 hours sometimes. And there's been certainly those kind of periods. Um, but this is um, why I have the job that I have um, is to be here um, uh, for the the population um, when when it counts, so you know this is a really important time for me uh, to be there for for people, for my colleagues also across the country. Um, so it's tiring, but I, I get up every morning and I go, okay, I'm going to do something that I hope will be helpful. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually quite difficult to maintain that that, that balance, uh, that work life balance. So. I think even uh, members of the public knows when on some days when I look really, really tired um, and that would be true. Um, but, you know, I, I try to take um, some time to um, rest as, as I can. Um, and since about May, I've been trying to do a little bit more, you know, physical exercise when I can get a little bit of time in just to just to make sure I have, um, you know, the energy to carry on really. What do you think when you're going through this incredible marathon um, and working so hard and you see people out protesting masks uh, or the anti-vaxxers, how does that make you feel? Well, I think, um, you know, the way that I look at it is that um, for the most part, the vast majority of Canadians have been, um, you know, coming together, have been doing, following public health advice. And that is tremendous. And so people have to remember that and not just sort of look at singular events or um, people who uh, may have a difference in, in perspectives. We also have to look at people who have different perspectives and listen to see if there's any other questions that we need to answer that hasn't been answered. The mask, for example, uh, is all, always taken um, to be a topic of discussion. And you got to sort of, sort of figure out why, but it is something that is a tremendous shift. It's a cultural shift. It's a behavioral shift in the population. For a country that ha doesn't wear masks on regularly, uh, hasn't sort of been wearing masks before this pandemic, and to the point now where the vast majority of people 
are wearing masks when they're not with their household members in public and, and, and certainly when you can't physically distance. And that's a tremendous change and shift. So of course there are people who are much more comfortable with that than, than others. But we're trying to look at the science. And if the science is telling us something new, we've got to be able to adjust our public health advice with it. And that's difficult for people to maybe understand. Um, so in the masks situation, um, when we knew that asymptomatic spread was uh, uh, something that was emerging, that was when we, you know, together with the other chief medical saying, you know, wear, wear masks would be an additional layer of protection. Um, even though the data may be sparse at the time, uh, it seemed like a sensible thing to do as an additional layer of protection. And now we're getting more and more data to show that masks wear, particularly when everybody's wearing a mask, it really uh, can help cut down on uh, transmission. So the changing uh, advice is difficult for some. Well, that, that, was, that was a subject of big controversy in the spring because remember initially you were saying there's no evidence for masks, we don't know, it could be a greater risk. Now we're telling people wear masks. I noticed in your annual report there wasn't a lot on masks. Do you think that if we had worn them earlier, there would have been lives saved? So of course we say, because in the first wave, of course, uh, a lot of the advice was fairly broad. It was staying at home as much as possible. And at the same time as the evidence emerged about asymptomatic transmission, it was coming to the end of that first wave when people were beginning to come out back into social and economic spaces which is when we really shifted the um, thinking along with the science. So the timing is, for one, increasing evidence, but two is people are now going out, uh, whereas before they were staying uh, home. So, uh, but we knew that as we open these spaces and people go back to school or to work, uh, wearing a non-medical mask will be an added layer of protection. So that was, that was um, another consideration as well. On Friday, you released new numbers, new modeling. And I was really struck by one of the slides that showed what would happen if people continue with their current uh, levels of social contacts or increased it. It wasn't just an increase. It was almost a vertical line going straight up. How much worse do you think the second wave is going to get? Because those numbers were pretty astonishing. Well, as we keep repeating, how far the this is a resurgence gets and how steep that slope is dependent on our individual behavior. So this is, and, and our collective behavior. So we can drive the steepness of that curve and exactly how big this resurgence can get. The models show you what can happen if we didn't do something, if we didn't begin to take further action. So that's the message that we're trying to convey. If you look at some of the European countries who've gone ahead of us in their epidemic, you can see how far some of those spreads can occur. If you look at countries like France, Spain, or others. So they serve as a reminder to us as to how this virus can, can transmit. And it can go in what we call exponential increase, which is where um, you know, one person transmits to more than one person and just keeps going and uh, to a point where uh, you lose the ability to actually see the edges of that transmission. And that's, that's, that's the issue. And so in some of the, what we call hotspots uh, in Canada, 
uh, more has to be done now in order to slow that acceleration. Um, but even in areas where there isn't such a high rate, if everybody can observe these measures as a prevention, then you don't have to see that curve escalate. Um, but so really, we are um, in control of uh, what this um, second resurgence could look like. And so it's, um, you know, this, this is not a crystal ball. I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen. But the models illustrates what could happen. I noticed on one of the slides it, it recommended reducing social contacts by 25%. You talked about reducing contacts, but you didn't give that number. So I'm curious to know, is, is that sort of about the percentage most people should be trying to cut back by? Yeah, so um, again, this is modeling, which shows that in a community basis, you need to cut down the levels of interaction by about 25% for that curve to, to bend. And, and in some cases, you have to actually do more than that, depending on what your uh, contact levels were like. And so for individuals, though, that it's difficult to translate into precise numbers. So our advice is to reduce your contact as much as possible to your household and then limit the number of sort of close contacts with others. It is different for different individual uh, settings because... Uh, ma many people have to go to work and you can't stay at home, you can't do telework because you're in the front lines doing essential support, bringing food to our tables or working in grocery stores or uh, other settings. So it's, the reality is not the same for everyone. Some have to take public transport, they have no choice. And so as, it's just that everybody should do as much as they can within their own context to get that number down. What we are particularly focused on is don't um, have, um, you know, big gatherings. Don't have parties where people can't observe all those measures. And uh, it's in some of those private gatherings where some of these bigger spreading events have occurred. And in workplaces, some have adapted because their essential services have been adapting over time to public health um, um, advice, guidance, uh, regulations at the local level. In some workplaces, they, they're just coming back to work. They have not got used to it. Some workplace cultures are not um, so, um, so they're inclined to follow the rules. And, and so, so everybody actually has to do a bit more. That cuts down on the collective contacts by a quarter. That's what you're sort of aiming for, just to bend that curve um, and, and don't let it go you know, straight up. What do you think of the pleas from the restaurants and fitness industries who are saying, uh, we don't have the national numbers, it's different everywhere, and I know that you're national, but for example, in Ontario, 2% of the cases were coming from restaurants, 5% from gyms. Uh, and they're saying the, the entire industry is being crushed under the weight of these shutdowns. Do you think it's still good science to be shutting down gyms and restaurants? Uh, I think obviously maybe bars or clubs where people are dancing and yelling is another story, but a lot of these other places are saying, look, we're being so careful. Yes, yeah, so um, there are some very difficult choices that local levels have to make. But um, maybe I'll, I'll point at a few observations. One is that um, if you see the escalation in cases, and you saw one of the graphs that shows the, the kind of outbreak settings, we are getting uh, more reporting from schools and more reporting from long-term care and other settings and, and industri certain industrial settings. 
because they are very easy to track. So school is a defined population. The kids come in, you screen them, there are teachers. Uh, there's protocols that are being followed. Um, and you can account for contacts, actually, quite easily. Uh, Long-term care is the defined population. They generally are not moving in and out very much. And again, through rapid testing, contact tracing, you can keep those outbreaks under control, which is what we want to see. And they have got smaller. In certain settings, this is more difficult. The population you're trying to track is not defined. They're moving in and out more. Um, and in certain settings, it's not every gym, perhaps, um, that is more difficult to observe uh, those public health measures. Um, but we, we are trying to adapt. I think every business should be able to adapt and see what happens. And so I think in the local level, it's a very difficult decision. They're trying to op keep schools open. They're trying to keep essential workplaces, schools, and, and, and uh, educational institutes open. So how do you cut down on that contact community-wise? Um, th there's some settings because they satisfy the three C's, what we call the three C's, close, uh, poorly ventilated, uh, crowded potentially, uh, and face-to-face -face contacts, where you ha sometimes have to take your mask off when you're eating or when you're maybe exercising uh, strenuously. Um, that might be uh, happening as well. Um, so, so I think people are taking all of that into account. Secondly, there is literature to show where super spreading events can occur. So they have occurred in, in gyms. We have examples in uh, a spinning uh, studio. There have been uh, certain settings um, in, in, in pubs, but perhaps people were singing and were not wearing masks. Um, but globally, the literature has shown that super spreading events occur in those, those, those environments. So, and, um, but, but I think it needs reevaluation on an ongoing basis. These are difficult decisions uh, to balance out at the, at the population level. The other thing, though, is that um, because people are being asked to do these measures for the good of the community, there should be support. So I do know that there's some financial support for businesses. That's not my area of work. But because they have been asked to observe these public health measures, um, there should be some support in order for them to do so. They're playing their part. A lot of Canadian seniors died with COVID-19, and many more could. Why do you think the situation has been so much worse in Canadian long-term care homes than it has been in similar countries who, who have not lost as many of their elderly? Yes, so I think we have to learn from that initial wave and that one of the most important aspects of the second resurgence is protecting the most vulnerable, which includes seniors and those in long-term care. Um, in my annual report that I just put out, um, I pointed to some systemic uh, gaps. Some of it pertains to how we value seniors and how we as a society look after them, which includes the conditions in long-term care. So some of, I think, our challenges were maybe crowded conditions in long-term care, 
where the environment is um, conducive to transmission of the virus. We didn't invest enough in infection prevention and control practices. We've been trying to put in those measures, providing personal protective equipment to protect the workers, to protect the residents, um, have um, administrative and environmental controls within those settings, screening procedures, providing rapid testing, which wasn't there at the beginning. But the other thing that I tried to point out in my report is the human resource. The human resource we're dependent on often racialized, marginalized, poorly paid, low-wage workers to help and support long-term care facilities. And when they're impacted and they couldn't go to work, the whole system began to feel the massive stress. And we had to send in the military to support that. And so that was how fragile that system was. And this pandemic really shone a light on some extremely systemic issues. So putting in support for low-wage workers, uh, I, I said I really liked uh, a quote by one of our social scientists. Remember, science and research isn't just about viruses. It's about social and behavioral science. And what she said was, and I have to hopefully quote this properly, is that we have the most vulnerable workers looking after the most vulnerable people in our society in the most challenging of work conditions. So all of those things in combination, I think, put our long-term care facilities at risk at the beginning. Um, but some jurisdictions have took rapid action and were able to reduce that. And so we look to um, you know, all jurisdictions now to, to really look after our seniors so that they're not so heavily impacted in this resurgence. There's two pandemics that, that you've spoken about and a lot of public health officials have spoken about. And I think, frankly, every Canadian has felt this. People with no history of, of mental health challenges have said they felt anxiety, they felt depression. We've seen skyrocketing rates of opioid deaths and addiction. Um, we've heard more domestic violence, more violent crime, more suicides. Um, how as a public health official do you balance the challenge that the virus is bringing and the threat that it poses with the effects it's having on so many people's mental health and the effects that some of the responses we have have on mental health? Yes, so I think <clears throat> together with my colleagues around the country, um, we've been looking at this issue and the report that I just put out is looking at the broader impact of the pandemic, not just as a direct result of the virus, but as some of the indirect impacts. Some are, uh, pertains to the public health measures, some pertain to the stress that we have in the society. It is normal to feel stressed and, and, and uh, under these circumstances. So for people uh, without actual mental illness, what we have to do is try to increase our resilience and our coping uh, capacity. So having some tools um, some of them are not being well utilized at the moment, but the, it's the Wellness Together Canada platform, for example, is meant to provide virtual care uh, and support for those who may not be, uh, have serious mental illness but are still not coping and are stressed. 
So kids' help lines and lots of other uh, what we call step care services can be uh, provided virtually or otherwise to those who are feeling um, stressed. Those with mental illness, though, deserve particular attention, and they do need uh, the support and, and resumption of some of these services. So in this second resurgence, what we are asking everybody to do to reduce transmission so that you can keep those routine medical appointments, you can keep routine medical procedures uh, and not having to cancel them like we did in the first wave because people need all of those. So essential surgical procedures were continuing, but we need the routine ones to continue as well. And what I'm worried about now is with the increasing cases and increased numbers in, in hospitalized, you're going to begin to impact on those routine procedures which people have been so desperate to have, hip replacements and you know, lots of things that are important to us. Having screening, having regular routine immunizations, those are important. And to keep them up, we have to keep the transmission of the virus down. It's not one or the other. In fact, what public health is doing to keep virus transmission down will help boost routine procedures from keep to the, um, um, we can keep up with them. For persons who are severely impacted by the opioid crisis, we need to provide a safer environment so that they can access harm reduction services. So expanding the access um, to who can provide safer medications. Um, I know that the federal government at, on the one level is changing and adapting the regulatory environment so that pharmacists can potentially prescribe um, safer medications. Nurses have been empowered to do some of that. So, so out of this pandemic, I think one of the key points is people have recognized that we need to look at more innovative ways of providing access to necessary treatments and safer supplies for those who experience the opioid crisis. Keeping up with um, overdose prevention sites is important. Um, making sure people who are isolating at home, perhaps, have other tools available, virtually or otherwise, so that they're not experiencing um, potentially harmful situations alone. So we've got to attack the situation on all fronts and not forget that there's another crisis going on. It is a difficult thing to balance. Uh, pu public health is not an exhaustive resource and everybody is tired, but we believe, firmly believe, we need to manage both of these crises at the same time. Now, the other aspect of what I pointed out in my reports, public health can't do that alone. So you need social services, you need the finance departments, you need other uh, supports to NGOs and community-based organizations so that they can help support the high-risk populations. Um, so it's not one or the other, you're going to have to keep up. But the reason why we have to tackle the virus is because if we don't, we can't actually provide those services uh, as well as we can. When you look back over the course of the pandemic, this is a new virus. You're just starting to hear about it in December and January, figure out what it means. You're watching it spread through Asian countries, through Europe, through the United States and into Canada. Do you look back and wish there was one thing you'd done differently? I'm sure every country and every organization and every individual, one of us will 
have to sort of really look at the lessons learned when all this is uh, said and done. I think one of the questions often posed is, should we have closed the borders earlier? Um, I'm sure that will be examined. Uh, Do you think we should have? Time. I mean, New Zealand did, Taiwan did, they had lower rates. So, so that, that's a quite uh, important question and a very difficult one. And so at the time, Canada had about 100, just about 100 cases uh, domestically. And um, the public health um, you know, discussion at the international level at the time was we need to sort of minimize these sort of uh, uh, border restrictions commensurate with uh, what the risks might be. So that, that will be examined because what will we do with the next um, emerging pathogen? So I think um, you know, that's one area is what is the trigger for that kind of uh, very sort of extremely broad and impactful measure. I think looking back, we will see that it's difficult to prevent introduction of an invisible virus. Um, and if you're thinking it's in one country, it's probably in, in, in many. So that, that's a different way of looking at it. Decisive action and fast action is important. We know that. Uh, you know, maybe better risk communication, making sure people know that while transmission really wasn't happening very much in Canada at the time, it could happen. That could occur. But it was a massive decision and one that I think our political decision makers, it was, is, is, is always a difficult decision. We're talking about a country, this is not the same as maybe an island country with one port of entry. This is a country of many ports of entry with a land border that is the biggest undefended, as it were, border in the world with the greatest amount of economic activity. And to stand up a border, no, I also speak to public health capacity. So in the future, how much border health capacity do we need? We've had to accelerate from a very, very small footprint to a much bigger one, and in collaboration with many government departments, to now, and, and now we have one of the strictest uh, border measures in the world to ensure that we uh, um, keep Canada safe. What is that balance? And how do we safely uh, reopen is another question. So we need to look at this holistically, I think, and it is definitely worth examining so that the next time this comes along, uh, it can inform our decisions. I've always said the one pandemic, if you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic. Looking at the last pandemic to make your current decision doesn't always play out. So I think that's one thing that we have to bear in mind is that the next one might be very different from the current one. And um, so hindsight is one thing, but we now need to sort of prepare going forwards. One other suggestion I had uh, going forwards in my report is that pandemic planning cannot be just a health sector planning. It has to involve people who are um, looking after immigration or people who are looking after social services and social support um, or other data collection department statistics. 
but uh, you know, public service and procurement Canada who helps us procure supplies. Public health is a small contingent. We have to ramp up on so many different operational elements is going forwards, we have to have a multi-sectoral whole of society plan. And that plan has to be exercised and tested and so that we build individual community resilience as well as the public health system itself. Um, and we will take on um, you know, lessons learned, but we can't do this alone. There's no way this can be done just by public health alone. And um, so, so I think Canada, to stand uh, against the next incursion, it will come, another infectious disease, you know, will keep evolving, it will, something else will happen, is that we need to increase resilience in how we um, manage in our population and resilience. And I suggest and propose in my report that for resilience building in between pandemics, it's where you need community support. You need to reduce those inequities so that you don't have so many vulnerable populations. You don't have so many disadvantaged, racialized, inequitable, uh, uh, um, systemic issues that you're going to get those serious outcomes. So it's a complex problem that deserves a complex and thoughtful re-examination um, and path forwards. I know you're a very busy, busy person, and I have to let you go, but just before I do, do you think we'll see a third wave? Well, epidemiologists have sort of debated as to what we call these ups and downs. And in Canada, we have many different patterns. So the national curve is a composite of all sorts of things. So you look at each jurisdiction there, their bumps are kind of different. So it's whatever you call it. Could we get another resurgence after this? Absolutely. It depends on what we do. So it's up to us and our collective actions. Uh, but, uh, you know, given that the population immunity, we're measuring that and we will keep measuring it, is very low. So at the last measurement, we're only, a f you know, a few percentage points in terms of our, the immunity in our population. That leaves over 90 percent of the population or 95 percent of the population still vulnerable. So that uh, tells us that um, resurgences can happen um, if we let our guard down. Um, but um, I know we can do this. We're, I think one, one other thing is to remind people that the incredible work done by communities and individuals has brought us time to um, develop vaccines and some of them are beginning to be um, uh, you know going through the clinical trials that's what those measures buy us too is time so that we can have uh, vaccines and better treatments dr tam thank you so much for joining us a pleasure thank you well there you have it that's our podcast for this week and by the time you're joining us again next week we'll know who the next American president is. At least hopefully we will, depending on how those results shake out. So be sure not to miss our show as we unpack what it will all mean for us here north of the border in Canada.